Ah, book by book, Bible study in the book of Isaiah the prophet. I'm Richard Bewes, joined here in London, England, by Paul Blackham, a colleague that I've worked with for many years. We worked together on book by book, but then also by our special guest here, Alec Matia. And we've been enjoying your commentary, Alec, very much as we've been looking at these studies. And now we're coming to the third of our studies. We've done already the first lot, which we called Human Shame. Then we did The Glory of Emmanuel. Now thirdly, we come to World Panorama. As we're looking, well, we can't cover all of chapters uh, 13 to 20, but we'll cover a bit of it, as much as we can, knowing that our friends who are joining us in Bible study will perhaps do a bit of follow-up with the Isaiah study guide that's come out and that, of course, you can follow up with. So, let me read from chapter 13 and perhaps beginning at verse 19 as we look at the world panorama. Here we are. Babylon, the jewel of kingdoms, the glory of the Babylonians' pride will be overthrown by God, like Sodom and Gomorrah. She will never be inhabited or lived in through all generations. No Arab will pitch his tent there, no shepherd will rest his flocks there, but desert creatures will lie there. Jackals will fill their houses. There the owls will dwell, and there the wild goats will leap about. Hyenas will howl in their strongholds, jackals in her luxurious palaces. Her time is at hand, and her days will not be prolonged. Wow, that's the start of the world panorama. Babylon. Let's talk about Babylon and its future fall that features so prominently in chapters 13 and 14, actually as it does in the New Testament so strongly in the book of Revelation. Is this all about just one ancient city, Alec? It's worth asking how Isaiah got there. Um, as we read the book of Isaiah, we find that each section plants a seed which is developed in the next section. The opening five chapters plant the seed, David is coming again. Chapters 6 to 12 develop the idea, and we find the birth of the great king in chapter 9 and his righteous rule in chapter 11. Mm. But the rule of David in chapter 9 is going to be worldwide, indeed in chapter 11 too. And therefore we ask ourselves, how can the king of a tiny kingdom come to rule the world? And it's the function of chapters 13 to 27 to develop that idea. It's in, the whole section falls into three parts, and each part is headed by Babylon. Babylon is the current imperialist, and there's always an imperialist who's going to try and run the whole world. And that will be right through until the one whom the Bible calls the man of sin, yes. before the coming of Christ. There's always someone trying to rule the world. So there's a world dimension That's really right. attaching and, to Babylon. And that goes back to Genesis, where Babylon is the first great act of human self-sufficiency. Mm. We will build a city and a tower that reaches up to heaven. Yes. They didn't manage to get to heaven because God says, I'd better go down and have a look. You know, so they're, they're not succeeding, but they're doing their best to rival God. Yes. And in Genesis, Babylon is called Shinar, and that keep, keeps reappearing. Yes. The, the, the ancient and theologically nasty name for Babylon. Mm. That's helpful. I mean, this one king of Babylon, I mean, he gets plenty of attention in chapter 14 here. Yeah. 
Let's work out, how, if we can, how this focus on one king you know, provides a basis for prophecies against the other nations, yeah. Paul. What do you well, think? I think one of the, it's, it, it's a chapter, Isaiah 14, that's received tremendous attention historically, partly because in the authorised version, you get Lucifer, the word Lucifer in... Yeah, yeah, chapter 40, uh, verse 12, how you're fallen from heaven, Lucifer, son of the dawn. And that's where the name Lucifer comes from. It doesn't care anyone else in the Bible, and Mm. it's partly because the authorised version does that. Now, I don't think necessarily that that's Isaiah's mainly talking about Lucifer there, because he's really talking about this king of Babylon who... um, you know, and all his arrogance and how he, well, you know, he'll die and just be like everybody else in death and the the realm of the dead. In the realm of the dead, he's just a nobody like everybody else. But I do think it is interesting that even if if Isaiah isn't really primarily thinking about Lucifer in that way, there's that sense, though, in which there is a spiritual dimension behind all the earthly leaders. Ezekiel 28 has that very powerfully. We have like the king of uh, Tyre and And then this ruler over his shoulder and that is Lucifer. That is like the devil there. And then Daniel has the princes behind the nations. So that, in that sense, perhaps it is worth thinking about it in that way because... There is this attitude that is fun because the devil does think I will ascend to heaven. I will make my throne higher than the most. That is the attitude of the devil and all his empire, which is reflected in the empires of this world. There is something so that when we see that arrogance, that desire to build a tower above the heavens, that isn't just human arrogance. There's that other spiritual powers that are behind that enterprise as well. So I do think Isaiah is saying, look, here's this man who rules the Babylon, and he's a very arrogant man. But there is that sense that behind him there are these other dark forces that, that, are, that, that go for that enterprise and want to create that sense of a, of a world in antagonism mm. to God. Yes, and the world, of course, is composed of these different Gentile nations. As you go on from chapter mm. 15, 16, you know, prophecy against Moab there, verse mm. f- chapter 15. Then you get uh, Damascus. Damascus, 17, you get Cush, 18, Egypt, 19. So all these oracles surrounding the Gentile nations, what does Isaiah from Judah have to do with all these nations? Well, all the prophets were universal prophets. They all took a worldview. The opening chapter of Amos, for example, he goes round the surrounding nations. Mm. It goes back to the doctrine of creation, really, that the Lord is the Lord is God of the whole earth, and the prophets had this question in the back of their minds: Well, has the God of the old earth, the whole earth, nothing to say to the major part of creation? And sadly, most of it is a message of judgment, but not all of it. Mm because we're coming on at the end of Isaiah to the new heaven and the new earth, the new creation. But they all, they all, had, they all had the world view. And in these chapters of Isaiah, it's as though he's probing his way forward mm. up to chapter 27. Uh, th- 13 as far as 20, he's dealing with the map of the world as he knows it, the nations as he sees them all around him. Then from chapter 21 onwards to 23, he uses cryptic titles. 
Ah, yes. He, 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 when he addresses what we discover to be Babylon, he calls it the oracle regarding the wilderness of the sea. Yes. And there's no great reason why. I just think that he'd taken his family down to the Red Sea on holiday, <laughs> and it came to him there. I don't know. Yeah. But he's actually talking about Babylon, but he's not naming it as such yet. He's probing further out into the future. The outline is the same. There's still the dominant power. And then you come into chapter 24, and there are no, there are no headings, 24 to 27. He's right out now to the end of time. Right. So it's not precisely crystal it is truly a panoramic. That's right, yes. But it's the, it's the same five, when you get to 24 to 27, it's the same five-fold division. Yeah. And he mentions the people of God always in the fourth division yes. of yes. the five. Yes. It's just so well planned. Mm. He's taking a world view, then a rather, a rather more hazy world view as he goes a step forward, and then right to the end, where Babylon simply becomes the city where nothing means anything anymore. Mm. Yeah. That's actually what strengthens the people of God everywhere, and including today. If we've got a credible worldview, then we can stand against all the terrors and the things that Do are right. going on in our world today right. and say, no, we understand this. Yeah. We've, we've read Isaiah. Yeah. We understand the principles here. Paul, can we, do you think, follow? I detect a pattern of judgment, stroke, then redemption, then judgment as well. Yeah. Yeah. That's in chapters 15 to 16. Mm -hmm. yep. We seem to get that pattern. I mean, Moab is under judgment. They were the descendants of uh, Abraham's nephew Lot. Mm -hmm. um, well, do I detect a sort of gospel outlook for Moab as well then? Yeah. Chapter 16, no, verse 4 and 5 here? Yeah? Well, mm. you do. I mean, this little pattern where you'll get a judgment against the nation and then in the middle of it, There'll be a word, this little message of hope. Yeah. So let, and them then back to, yeah. let them know about fugitives stay with you. Be their shelter from the destroyer. Yeah. That's chapter 16, verse 4. Mm. Interesting. It is, it's almost like a sandwich where you've got a judgment and a judgment pieces of bread where you get a, a, a sort of a gospel redemption bit in the middle of the sandwich. Mm. You get this pattern over and over again. And here with Moab, because it sounds as if, oh, there's no hope for Moab. Shall there's we? just endless destruction. And, and yet almost it's as if, yeah, there's judgment, there's destruction, and all the different aspects are going to be... Uh, destroyed really and yet in the middle is this sense of but there is somewhere where you could go to to find shelter and refuge yeah. and it's almost so it's all yeah there's this big world vision to all the nations yes the judgment of god is coming upon the whole world and yet all the time he's like but there is a place of safety for you to run to and he always mentions it in the middle of in the heart of it all these prophecies you'll get something sometimes it's only quite small sometimes it's a bit bigger but always he's saying come come to the place of safety so that teaches us not to write off some of the mm. difficult parts of the world that we see today and uh -huh. say oh they're finished not at no. all not at no. all because there's always a hope and the gospel invitation is always there always. and that's what happens in chapter 16 the gospel invitation goes out to Moab mm. yes. sadly it would seem from verse 6 that they're held back by pride yeah. yes and, and indeed when we meet Moab again in the parallel passage in chapter 25 Moab is oh, yes. still too proud to come into the eternal city 
Yes, I, I like that in verse 7 of chapter 17. In that day, men will look to their maker and turn their eyes to the Holy One of Israel. Mm. It's Israel's salvation that's that is right. crucial and important. It's something to watch out for all through the Old Testament, mm. yeah. that it's in the salvation of Israel that the world is saved. Mm. But do remember, of course, that Israel in the Old Testament is the same as Israel in the New Testament, mm. namely those who believe in Jesus. Yes, Yay. exactly. Exactly. Uh, friends, let's speed on to the African nations of Egypt and Cush. I mean, there we are, chapters 18 to 20. What are we to make of what looks like a sort of, well, a wonderful sort of exodus hope to the Egyptians in chapter 19, verse 19 to 25? There we got it. There's, there's quite a bit there about uh, um, in that day there will be an altar to the Lord in the heart of Egypt. Yeah, I know. A monument it's... to the Lord at its border. It will be a sign and witness to the Lord Almighty in the land of Egypt. I, know, I love this bit. It's one What's of my favourite bits because there's Egypt who must have always been associated in the minds of everyone in Israel. Oh, they're the slave masters. You've got to be redeemed from them. Mm. And then there's this wonderful prophecy where really the Lord say, yeah, but who's going to save the Egyptians from themselves? <laughs> How, who, where, they need an exodus to to be saved out of Egypt yeah, yeah. and so he gives this lovely thing where he kind of goes back over almost the Pentateuch really mm. and he says you know that the, the patriarchs had monuments that they set up you, got, you Egyptians can have that you can have an exodus I'll come and rescue you from yourselves just as I rescued the Israelites I love that because it's true in that big sense we kind of we're our own slave masters in that big sense and mm. there's the Egyptians they need rescuing from Egypt and there's that lovely way he says you will have an exodus too I'll come and rescue you that's I very interesting it. and very helpful because otherwise we would easily write Egypt off. Yeah. Bring, bring tears to your eyes if you think about mm, it. Yeah. The first oppressor and the current oppressor, Egypt and Assyria. Yeah. Mm. And they're both going to be my people. Mm. <laughs> Which means, as we're closing off, let's think about it for a moment because today in the church worldwide, we're covering all five continents. Well, Egyptians who love the Lord Jesus Christ. There are Jews who love the Lord Jesus Christ as their Messiah. There are Assyrians, I suppose we could say, or Syrians who love Jesus as their Messiah. There are Australians, there are Turks, there are Brits, there are Americans, there are Nigerians. And in our family worldwide... And the Irish. And we won't forget the Irish either, <laughs> because Alec was born in Dublin. He comes mm. from Dublin. We won't forget the Irish either, so that worldwide, there's a great family out there. Are we all wearing the same clothes? No. Do we have to wear the same headgear? No. Do we have the same dietary needs? No, not at all. You can look at anybody and you can't tell just by looking at them whether they're a follower of Jesus, the true successor of Israel, but they're there everywhere worldwide in a true international family. God bless you today and thank you for sharing in this world panorama in the book of Isaiah. We'll be back with another study before too long.